Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to a brand new week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and I have to say I am so glad to be back with all of you. Um, My wife Janice and I spent a little more than a week out in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, one of our favorite places in the world uh, to travel. But I really missed hearing the panels that you all get to hear every day, along with me, talk about the important news that has uh, taken place while um, we were gone. So I want to get right to it today uh, by introducing the panel. And we've got some breaking news to talk about in just a moment. But before we get to it, Let's start with introducing Patricia Murphy. She's my partner on the Monday show from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Patricia, you know, is a reporter for the AJC as well as the um, twice-weekly columnist. The Political Insider column appears on Wednesdays and Sundays. And Patricia oversees the jolt at AJC.com. How are you, Patricia? I'm doing great. Welcome back, Bill. Welcome back to reality. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so very much. Uh, Margaret Coker is back with us. We always love talking uh, to Margaret. She, of course, is the editor-in-chief of The Current, which is a digital news publication that you can read at thecurrentga.org. And Margaret, You cover news all up and down the Georgia coast, but of course you also cover the big stories breaking across the state of Georgia. How are you, Margaret? I'm well. Um, Walked my dog this morning in Savannah to a balmy 72 degrees. It's positively autumnal down here in the coast. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. Maria Saporta is back with us as well. She is the founder and a contributor to the Saporta Report, which you can also read at supportareport.com. Maria, I'm interested in the fact, you know, I always think of you as the editor of the Supporter Report since it's your baby. It's something you founded, what, some 12 years ago, Um, but you modestly call yourself a contributor. Right, well, Maria? <laughs> I, I am the founder, and, it, and we're actually 13 years old now. Um, wow. So it's uh, it's pretty amazing. I have a hard time believing that as well. But, yeah, it's we're a very collegial group. Um, everyone who writes I consider to be my colleagues. And um, we do have an editor now who actually edits the copy, um, and uh, his name is Derek Prawl. So... <laughs> And I guess officially I'm the executive editor, but we're not big on titles. <laughs> All right. Maria, thank you for being here. <laughs> and I'm happy to welcome back uh, Professor Adrian Jones, professor of political science and director of pre-law at Morehouse College. Adrian, when do you get back to uh, uh, students coming in? They are coming in. I saw some on Friday um, as a part of our freshman orientation. We were speaking with our new majors. And um, for me, I have orientation tomorrow or, um, you know, faculty retreat. And um, then we get started on Wednesday. 
You looking forward to it? I am. Um, it seems like a good crop of students. And um, I think it's, you know, it's time to get back on the grind. And uh, we've got so much exciting stuff happening. So uh, for me, it helps to move the semester along that elections and election discussion is happening. Terrific. Um, All right, Patricia, as I said, we have some breaking news. If you're listening to the show live at nine, uh, uh, just a short time ago, Chase McGee forwarded to me an order from the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Georgia. The back, the background on this is Lindsey Graham has been subpoenaed to testify before the Fulton County Special Grand Jury investigating interference in the 2020 election here. He has argued that he is protected against having to testify um, because of the uh, speech and debate clause uh, in the uh, uh, U.S. Constitution. But here's what the court just said. The court finds that there are considerable areas of potential grand jury inquiry falling outside the speech or debate clause's protection. Additionally, sovereign immunity fails to shield Senator Graham from testifying before the special purpose grand jury. Finally, although Senator Graham argues that he is exempt from testifying as a high-ranking government official, the court finds that the district attorney has shown extraordinary circumstances and a special need for Senator Graham's testimony on issues relating to alleged attempts to influence or disrupt the lawful administration of Georgia's 2022 election. That's an enormous breaking news story, Patricia. That's a huge breaking news story. First of all, for the immediate news value that Lindsey Graham will be compelled to come to Atlanta to testify, but also really what that means for other uh, witnesses who are trying not to speak to this grand jury, and there are many of them, um, or even other U.S. senators who try not to speak to other investigations or other grand juries. To me, it certainly does seem to set a precedent about what is uh, considered part of the speech and debate clause and what is not. And what Lindsey Graham had argued is that he should not have to come to the special grand jury to testify about his phone calls to Brad Raffensperger. He made those phone calls in the aftermath of the 2020 election. He was a very close ally of Donald Trump and was apparently asking questions about uh, counting absentee ballots. How could you recount those? How could you throw some of those out? Um, he argued in his motion that as the chairman of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, that's just a part of normal operating procedure for uh, a chairman of the committee, uh, which does oversee um, policy related to elections. Um, that's really just not the case uh, <laughs> in the aftermath of an election. That is not normal procedure. If you were two years out of an election and looking back, looking back at two years, 10 years, 30 years, that is what the Judiciary Committee says. And so this uh, judge has said, no, you need to come in. And this is one of many um Many different judges who have told many different witnesses, including Rudy Giuliani, for his effort to evade this special grand jury, no, you're going to have to come to Fulton County. There may be areas that uh, may not be part of questioning, depending on how your lawyers work it out, that you will be in Atlanta testifying to the grand jury. Margaret, jump in. Yeah, so here in Savannah, as you all probably know, we are a long touchdown path away from the South Carolina border. And plenty of my Republican friends across the river, you know, really started to question um, um, Senator Graham's, uh, I think, priorities during the the former uh, president's administration, where it seemed like he was 
acting on behalf of the White House sometimes rather than um, on behalf of his constituents in South Carolina. And so this ruling, if nothing else, sort of starts to um, starts to create some firmer red lines or at least some re reinforce some of the boundaries that elected officials have in the pursuit of their elected office. And, of course, we have no idea whether um, Senator Graham has done anything wrong, but the fact that laws in federal laws in this case are going to have to apply to him, I think it's going to be welcome to a lot of people, um, not just supporters um, of the of the district attorney, but even voters in South Carolina. Um, Adrian, uh, this was a ruling by uh, District Court Judge Lee Martin May, who is the same judge who uh, uh, last month ordered uh, Jody Heiss to testify in front of the special grand jury. He, too, tried to cite the speech and debate clause, to um, uh, which he believed would give him immunity from testifying. But let's also make the point, Adrian, that that this is a district court ruling. So certainly, uh, I assume, Lindsey Graham uh, has the opportunity to appeal it up uh, at uh, another level in a, a possible attempt to forestall testimony, Adrian? I'm sure uh, he certainly does. Um, you know, but the speech and debate clause only covers what are purely legislative activities. It's really not a coverage mm-hmm. for political activity. And I think there's a strong argument for all of these witnesses that if they were involved um, in problematic ways, um, that the uh, impetus for that behavior was political and not purely legislative, didn't, didn't have them focused on the legislative work that's supposed to be happening in the House or Maria, governmental funny, agencies. I apologize. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, uh, I, so I apologize uh, for that, Adrian. Uh, Maria Fani Willis has been uh, fighting back hard. And except for the uh, ruling in the case of Burt Jones, who argued that she had a conflict of interest since she had contributed to uh, the the man who is now his Democratic opponent for lieutenant governor, where she lost, uh, uh, she's been winning uh, on all of these challenges. And, and, And I think it's fascinating, Maria, because we remember a time when even some anti-Trump folks, Democrats and others, wondered whether Fonnie Willis was getting into something that she ought to just steer clear of, given all the other cases she has to handle. But so far, she's proven her mettle as she takes on this special grand jury. It's been amazing to watch. Uh, she has become a national figure now, and and Georgia, just by the nature of it being a battleground state, <laughs> just by the nature of the famous phone call that Trump made to Raffensperger, we have become a, a real center of gravity for the whole issue of what were the elections stolen? Were, you know, did, did Trump give pressure to have people change the election results? And I think that she has definitely proven that she is holding her own in all of these issues. And Bill, uh, I, um, I'm sorry, you go ahead. No, you, your turn. I was just going to say, I wrote a column along these lines over the weekend, um, specifically about Rudy Giuliani, because his lawyers had argued that this is a man, a 70-year-old man with a health condition. And in July, he did have two stents implanted into his heart. So certainly did have that um, procedure. But they said maybe 
Um, we really think the DA's office should come to New York, or maybe he could testify informally over Zoom. Um, and uh, however, I went back and looked at what Giuliani has been doing since his stint procedure. He actually hosted his radio show um, the next day from the hospital. He said he felt perfect. He felt like nothing happened. He had been in New Hampshire, attended a baseball game. And so he, it's not that he has been convalescing in private silence. He, and he has been out there hammering the Georgia elections in public since that stint procedure. And so to me, um, it's not just Giuliani. It is Giuliani, Lindsey Graham, the 11 electors trying not to testify, um, John Eastman, all of these people who in the aftermath of the Georgia election really came to the state, intervened, participated in the court uh, process, injected their arguments into the court process about the election. Um, but now that the court has questions about all of that, um, they are not wanting to come back and answer those questions. So I think it is um, really uh, important for the grand jury to hear from them whether this leads to actual charges against the former president. We don't know. But for people who were so eager to come talk before, I feel like it is important for them to return to um, wrap that up now. In the interest of full disclosure, as listeners, longtime listeners to the show know, I had a stent procedure. I had two stents implanted uh, about a year and a half ago, and I was on Political Rewind the next day. I just want to point that out. <laughs> um, Adrian, I thought one of the things that was really interesting about uh, uh, the column that Patricia wrote was she pointed out that the doctor who wrote the note saying that Rudolph Giuliani was far too frail uh, to travel at this point, shouldn't go up in an airplane. Uh, turns out he was an infectious disease specialist uh, in New York. Good for him, but he's not He's not a cardiologist. Uh, he's not a guy whose specialty might offer some really specific reasoning uh, behind why Giuliani shouldn't travel, Adrian. I saw that, and I, um, you know, I'm concerned about Giuliani because, First of all, I'm an attorney, and um, Giuliani has been disbarred in New York. This is something that would give me extreme angst, whereas Giuliani, I feel like, has just never missed a beat. He's lost his law license. Maybe he's old enough now he doesn't need to practice any more law, but it makes me skeptical about, you know, even when he gets down here, is he going to tell the truth? Um, you know, I'm expecting that he's going to plead the fifth a lot, kind of like um, the former president, because... Um, it's clear to me that he just doesn't, you know, have a, he's not working in reality as far as I'm concerned. Um, Patricia, just before we uh, move on, Giuliani is, I think, right, scheduled to testify this Wednesday, unless the court sees more detailed information as to why he isn't healthy enough to travel, right? But uh, is there any further avenue for him to avoid coming to testify on Wednesday? Uh, it's just what you said. Uh, Judge Robert McBurney at the end of last week said, um, I expect to see him in court unless there is new information produced. And if that information is produced, I want it sooner rather than later. So now that um, it appears that the weekend has come and gone without additional information, I mean, we're expecting him on Wednesday, but, you know, anything can happen <laughs> with Rudy Giuliani. So we'll have to just wait and see. Maria? What? Well, he better. 
find out pretty quick because if he's going to take the train or the bus, it's going to take a good 24 <laughs> hours to get here. <laughs> Nick Bernie did say, you know, John Madden loved to ride a bus all across the country. You can ride a bus. You can visit friends in Washington that you have there. He said, but, you know, make, make it a casual stroll south, but you do need to be coming south. Yeah, um, Margaret, my sense of that McBurdy ruling was there was some biting kind of humor in it. He also, I think he said, we, Patricia had reported on the fact that Giuliani went to New Hampshire right after uh, saying that he couldn't fly to Atlanta. They pointed out uh, his people said, well, he didn't take a play and he drove up there. And in McBurney's ruling, uh, uh, he suggested he could make a gradual <laughs> journey south, Margaret. And he said, it's like driving to New Hampshire times three. Uh, I think McBurney made clear how skeptical he is about this argument. Yeah, I, I, I think the, the judge definitely had a, um, an insight into the dog ate my homework sort of excuse that Giuliani's team had put forward. So, yeah, we, so what happens next? You know, if, if you're held in contempt, um, what happens next? You know, I don't I don't think that America needs more drama. I think that in the dog days of August, uh, TV stations will uh, adore some more drama, especially if it relates to um, Giuliani. But but really, you know, for me, I'm I'm sort of concerned about decorum here. I'm sort of concerned about the, um, you know, follow people following the, the law of the land. And if the if the state is Georgia or if the judge is in Atlanta, then you do what the judge says. I, I hope for the sake of all of us that Giuliani actually does show up and, and stops these these sort of cheap parlor tricks. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. We will watch to see how all of this unfolds uh, this week. But as I said at the beginning of the show, this is another very big week for Fonnie Willis and her special grand jury. And of course, all this is unfolding even as we continue to get new information and hear arguments on both sides (laughs) about the search at uh, Mar-a-Lago last week. And I want to talk more specifically about that a little bit later in today's Political Rewind. But I'd really like to turn to some campaign news right now, if we can, especially in uh, the governor's race. Um, Patricia, the jolt came out, uh, what, about an hour or so ago. Uh, it's, that's your baby. And the first item uh, in the jolt this, this today says um, that Stacey Abrams has told Pod Save America, a very, very liberal progressive podcast, um, that if black men turn out and vote for her, she will be the next governor of Georgia. Talk a little bit more specifically about the data behind that. So in Stacey Abrams' um, polling, and this is um, uh, AJC polling, our most recent poll, as well as some internal polling that we've learned about, um, she is, of course, trailing Brian Kemp by you know maybe about three to five points. But I think an area of concern for the Abrams campaign is that she is – underperforming among black voters. She, at our poll, was polling at about 80%, and typically black statewide candidates poll about 90% if they are on track mm-hmm. to win their statewide elections. And um, this is a, um, obviously, uh, the community uh, crucial to her victory inside those crosstabs 
it is among black male voters that she is um, having a harder time than among black female voters. Black female voters have really always delivered for Stacey Abrams and um, certainly delivered in 2020. But there's um, some real softness among black men for Stacey Abrams. And so she held a campaign event last week uh, tailored specifically to black male voters. And then, of course, told Pod Save America um, how very important that subset is to her victory. And um, there is, uh, she'll of course need to do well among all areas, um, but in order to uh, defeat the governor that she lost to the last time around, she's got to improve her performance among black male voters. So um, Adrian or any of uh, the others of you on the panel today, but Adrian, let me start with you on this. I think I'm correct that Stacey Abrams, it's not necessarily prying black men voters away from Brian Kemp. It's getting black men to turn out at the polls in the first place. Um, Black men don't vote, I think, in the same percentage that black uh, women do. Can anybody tell me if if I've got that wrong? Because I think that the data tends to show that to be the case. I'm going to speculate that that is true. Um, I also, you know, I don't remember exactly the details, but, um, you know, the Democrats were not receiving as much support by black men in the last round of elections. And so I think it's smart for Stacey to pay attention this time. And I think some of that has to do with attention, right? The black community is considered um, captured by the Democratic Party. Um, And so I think that people go away feeling as if they haven't been treated with the kind of attention that a voter wants to feel, understand what the um, candidate intends to do. And Stacey is doing that for various demographics. Um, And I definitely have friends around the state who have attended some of her sessions for black men. And so I think it's um, smart for her to let them know uh, how important their vote is. Um, The reason I said that, by the way, is that here's the quote from Abrams. They, meaning black men, have the capacity that's sometimes not met by their turnout. I don't disparage those who make the decision not to vote. That said, I know that if we have the kind of possible turnout among black men and and so on and so forth. So she's uh, acknowledging that, Patricia. Yeah, she's certainly acknowledging that. I think also um, the uh, it's not just the Abrams campaign, also the Warnock campaign is facing a situation where Republicans are directly reaching out to black voters in a way that they haven't as much in the past. They have a new community center um, in uh, in College Park where they do a number of events targeted specifically at black voters. Herschel Walker was down there um, at the end of last week targeting black voters and black business owners in particular. Um, Donald Trump, I think, uh, performed better than expected among black voters. And so um, in addition to sort of the uh, the added effort from Republicans, um, the turnout there has just got to has got to happen for Stacey Abrams. And so that is um, that is absolutely high on her campaigns, um, on her kind of visibility. When you go into the crosstabs, she is losing male voters to Brian Kemp right now by about 20 points. Um, she's winning female voters by about 10 points, which is um, about where Joe Biden was, um, but it's that disparity among male voters and uh, specifically black male voters and their turnout um, that is uh, really something that they are working to turn around. Maria and then Margaret. Yes, the 2022 election is really unique for Georgia because we have 
two uh, black uh, men running for U.S. Senate, and then in the governor's race, a one black woman against a white man. So you look at the the top offices or the top elections this time. It'd be crazy if there's not record black turnout, given that you have three blacks running statewide. So, and I think it's hard to predict how that's all going to play out, whether it's for Stacey or Brian Kemp or, you know, for either of the U.S. Senate candidates. Margaret? Reverend Warnock won his runoff, I think, with 93% voter turnout among um, black voters in Georgia. That is an enormous, uh, enormous feat. And I think that Stacey Abrams is 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 acknowledging that that's going to have to happen again. This enormous historic turnout for Georgia to um, to put um, black candidates into the nation, uh, the, you know, one of the nation's top seats, another Senate seat. Right. But also at, at the state level to make a black woman Georgia's governor. We have an all female panel here. And I'll say something that might be controversial. But, you know, there, there is a lot of misogyny when it comes to politics. There's a lot of racism when it comes to politics. And so Stacey Abrams has a double whammy right there, overcoming both of those hurdles and winning a the top the top seat in, in the state of Georgia is going to be extraordinary. Um, you know, talking to voters in, in coastal Georgia, where the vast majority of Democrats are, are black Georgians, 76 percent of registered Democrats are black. You know, black men here um, say this not on the record and not for, for quoting in our publication, but you know, there's concern about voting for a strong black woman. That's, that's clear, I think, and we, we can all recognize that and, and analyze that. But you know, there, are, there are pockets of Georgia that it's gonna be very, very hard for her to win over. I think that there's probably um, you know, the, the secret sauce in the Democratic ticket is that Reverend Warnock is a man. <laughs> Reverend Warnock is a black man. Reverend Warnock can go into those pockets where Stacey doesn't necessarily have that authenticity and have that confidence and can help boost turnout. And hopefully, I think if you're a Democrat, hopefully that's going to um, raise all boats um, in, in the tide. I don't know that, that that's going to be able to overcome the 20-point deficit that Patricia's talking about in internal polling right now about uh, male support versus female support. But it is something I think that um, in quiet moments and in private, the Democratic Party in Georgia is trying to deal with. All right, uh, I got to get to a break. Um, when we come back, I have one more item about the governor's race that uh, the Jolt uh, put out this morning that I'd love to get this panel's uh, feelings about. Uh, and then we have a lot more uh, to talk about, including the fact that there were more deadly shootings in Metro Atlanta over the weekend. Um, what in the world can be done uh, to uh, stem the tide of violence? We'll talk about that and more after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
Margaret Coker of The Current, Adrian Jones, professor of political science at Morehouse College, Maria Supporter, editor of, of uh, excuse me, founder and contributor uh, to the <laughs> Supporter uh, Report, and of course, Patricia Murphy, AJC columnist and political reporter, join us for today's show. I So, uh, Margaret, the Jolt had another item today pointing out that the Kemp campaign has released another TV spot focusing on their claim that uh, Stacey Abrams wants to, quote, defund the police. Our good friend Rick Dent, uh, who is on this show relatively often now, uh, points out that the Kemp campaign clearly believes this is a powerful, powerful message uh, because they keep hammering away at it. I do have to say, in light of all of the uh, Republican pushback after the uh, uh, search at Mar-a-Lago, Apparently, Republicans believe that Democrats who want to defund the police are uh, somehow uh, 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 doing something terrible, whereas Republicans who want to defund the federal police are uh, doing uh, 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 good work here, Margaret. I do think there's an odd uh, uh, juxtapositioning of what's going on with the local message and what we're seeing from Republicans nationally. Yeah, we've gotten into the silly season, right? I mean, it's a it's a political year, and so there, uh, as as we can all see um, in our email inboxes every day, there are millions of dollars being raised for campaigns, and those millions of dollars have to be spent. And there are micro targeting of of voters going on. Look, I, I I imagine you know good money does not go after bad money. The Kemp campaign thinks that they have a, a winning message, and and yeah, they're going to keep beating that drum in Georgia. But you know, again, sort of to pull back out of that messaging, you, you know, first of all, we we do have a state law in Georgia that no one is able to defund the police more than five percent, right? Isn't that what the the um, the wording of mm-hmm. of the new law says? So it's almost a non-starter, but. The idea of public safety and public safety being the, the, the one of the number one campaign um, topics right now, because it's one of the number one campaign topics for all of Georgians. As you mentioned, Bill, there's you know more shootings um, this weekend in Atlanta. In Savannah, we are also dealing with with a rash of, of, of violent crime that that is related to to gun violence. You know, people are concerned right now about this one topic and whatever triggers outrage, whatever helps get voters out to the polls, um, Republicans will use whatever message necessary to, to help their side win. Patricia? So um, I completely agree with Margaret that, uh, I mean, this is a statewide um, concern, uh, but if you look even at the Atlanta mayor's race that happened, and it feels like it was 10 years ago, but it was uh, just last year. Um, The number one issue by far in that campaign was public safety and fears of crime. And so this is a top line issue, top of mind issue for people. And it really does cut across um, income. It cuts across uh, racial boundaries, but I think for different reasons, of course. Um, And Stacey Abrams, in her message, she she does have a nuance to her message on public safety that Brian Kemp does not. And I'll tell you uh, one line she had that really caught my attention from her economic speech last week. She said, I will raise the wages for state law enforcement officers. I will also raise and increase accountability for police misconduct and violence. And so because she has that nuance, because she does acknowledge police misconduct and violence, I think Republicans there see an opening to push that 
much, much further into, and she'll defund the police, and she doesn't trust police officers. Um, that's never been something that she has said. Um, however, it is a message that they know works, and it really does play on people's very real fears. In Atlanta, Macon, Savannah, Columbus, just these huge spikes in crime, violent crime in particular, gang activity. Um, that has people, I think, really worried about their own communities and neighborhoods. Maria and then Adrian. Yeah, obviously, uh, crime shootings are extremely serious. Uh, my concern is, I think that you you said there were four shootings this weekend or four killings in, in, in Atlanta. A lot of people just say Atlanta. Well, three of those four shootings actually were outside the city of Atlanta. And mm-hmm. I think somehow there gets this whole uh, focus that, you know, cities are, are dangerous and, you know, this where, you know, all kinds of shootings occur. The reality is it's far more widespread than just in, in city limits. And, um, I think we have to remember that. I do think that when Andre Dickens, and I might be jumping the gun here, but Andre Dickens last week really spoke of the whole concern that he has of all the shootings, of all the illegal guns that are out there, saying that uh, if 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 you have an illegal gun, you're going to be arrested. And he also said we have to come up with different ways to resolve conflict than with guns. That if uh-huh. you're in a heated setting, you you need to keep your gun locked in your you know somewhere. So I think this is really an area if. If we're going to be a gun carry state, if we're going to, you know, guns everywhere state, we're going to have to figure out other ways to resolve our conflicts. Um, Adrian, I do want to talk a little bit more about the problem with gun violence in Atlanta. Before we moved completely into that, and Maria got us off to a good start, just go back for a couple minutes to the Stacey, to the Kemp uh, pounding away at her for wanting to defund the police. It is true they did have it. You remember there was that there was that appearance on CNN where she was kind of goaded into in a very kind of spontaneous moment saying, yes, defund the police. But she went on in much greater context. She doesn't believe in defunding the police, but the Kemp campaign has really used that uh, to their advantage in a very powerful way. Um, she hasn't advocated that. And to um, Patricia's point, you know, she's made a nuanced ask. Now, is it Rick Dent who was saying that she waited too long to respond to those yes. first accusations? Yes. That may or may not be true. Yes. Um, however, I think it's also very smart of Kemp to tie, you know, dislike for the police, hate for the police, crime to a black candidate. Right. I'm saying we're not talking about it when we say the crime is in Atlanta. And um, Maria's pointing out that three of those murders, for example, this weekend were outside, right? These things are all conflated together. Um, they send signals. I also feel sorry for the mayor who is struggling to try to, you know, calm the city where in the state, um, you know, we're expanding the ability to carry permitless guns. Um, you know, I'm, I'm seeing that schism. I'm not understanding, like, you know, how are we going to reform the situation if people aren't serious about Stopping gun violence. All right. I want to take up one more issue uh, uh, that that relates to the gubernatorial race before we take our break. Patricia, uh, Stacey Abrams has now said that if she's elected governor, she will support uh, 
uh, sports betting and casinos, legalizing casinos. Uh, She wants three casinos spread out across the state so that they're not competing with uh, one another. And and, uh, Patricia, that is a uh, that is a major announcement. Uh, Governor Kemp has repeatedly said in the past that he opposed expanding gambling. He's come around to the point of view of saying, well, if the if it's if it's uh, something the people want, I'll probably go along with it. I think I've got that right. Uh, but for Abrams to do this is a big risk and possibly an opportunity. Hard to tell which is which. Yeah, well, I think it's um, I think it's smart. I mean, to me, it takes a page out of the Zell Miller playbook to say we're going yeah. to expand this and, and get gather all of this revenue, and it's going specifically to the Hope Scholarship and specifically to make higher education more accessible to the people who need it. That was Zell Miller's by far most popular legacy program. It might be the most popular governor's proposal I can remember, and I'm kind of old now. <laughs> so, um, I mean, it just stands among any other policy proposal that has been so successful and has really um, overhauled education and business in this state. And so she is saying, um, especially the capital you hear, oh, well, you know what? Technology means anybody can gamble online anytime anyway. Like, who cares? We're just not getting the money for it. So I think that is a very ripe area for expansion. The casino piece is a little bit more dicey, but that is the way you get rural lawmakers involved and supportive as well. And so she needed, I feel like, that big policy announcement to really tentpole all of her other smaller initiatives. And um, this loops in the economy, education, everything that she's for. And so I think it was a really smart proposal on her part. But, Maria, the reason I say it is a opportunity but potential risk is, as Patricia points out, uh, the the Hope Scholarship, the lottery, one of the biggest things that any governor has done uh, in terms of uh, uh, creating a new program for the state. But, Maria, you'll remember that Zell Miller's reelection campaign, he was uh, uh, really uh, uh, fiercely opposed by uh, Christian voters, conservative voters out there. And and for a period of time, it looked as if uh, Zell uh, and the uh, and his uh, commitment to the lottery was a real political liability. It's it's only as we look back at it that we realize what a huge success it is. Yeah, and I remember there were he had problems from the right and from the left. There were the you know yeah. the Christian uh, who don't gamble, don't do that. But on the left, there was a great concern about. Who is who is who are buying lottery tickets? Who will be gambling? Um, what's the equity there? Uh, taking their money and uh, and then yes, putting a third of it back into the hope program, but that means that two thirds of the money is is coming out of the pockets of the lower or mid mid income folks. And um, I think those issues will probably come back up again. Uh, with Stacey pushing for casino, because there's there's been an impression that casinos actually can invite crime or can invite certain elements that maybe are not healthy for communities. I think she'll have to have good plans uh, to to kind of bring out her her policies on this. I think this was an incredibly sophisticated policy move by the Stacey Abrams campaign, in large part to add on to everything that Patricia just said. It also is an incredibly, um, incredibly great opportunity for bipartisan uh, support. If 
if she is elected. You know, from Chickamauga down to Richmond Hill here outside of Savannah, you know, white Republican lawmakers have been the authors of the bills um, that have not gotten passed uh, in in the state house over the last couple of years. You know, this is something that that. Uh, you know, mainstream Republicans and mainstream Democrats, I think, can get around. I think it's also pretty important that beyond the Hope Scholarship, there's also the promise that Georgians will get free technical college education. That is also a huge advantage, both as um, something that is a progressive um, barometer for for Stacey's progressive wing, as opposed to mainstream Democrats. It is also something that would be considered very pro-business, just like this whole um, notion of increasing sports betting in Georgia is. And I think we all know that we, as people who've talked to um, members of Stacey's campaign, you know, they are incredibly hacked off that the Georgia Chamber of Commerce, the Atlanta Chamber of Commerce have all sort of sidled up to Republicans and, and Governor Kemp as opposed to giving her a chance. And so if she's going to put forward, as some of her commercials do, that she's a strong pro-business advocate, this is another, um, another notch in her belt, too, potentially. Adrian, another aspect of what uh, uh, the Abrams campaign rolled out in terms of allowing legalized gambling, is, and, and that is nuanced and will satisfy a great many people, is part of the money she believes should be earmarked to what they call the C students. One of the objections from the Hope Scholarship all along, uh, Maria already basically referred to it, uh, talking about who buys lottery tickets, but it's also who benefits uh, from the money for the lottery. And it's it's the high-performing students who typically come from better schools. And so the opportunities for students who have uh, lower grade averages to get funding to go to college, state colleges, is a big part of this program as well. And one that I assume the Abrams campaign will really uh, uh, promote widely. Well, that was the line of the speech that really caught me when she said, you know, you should be able to see your way to college. <laughs> um, and I think it's important because, you know, your academic prowess in the beginning or at any particular stage may not be a reflection of your overall work. Um, students today are really locked in on getting A's. Um, and it's clear to me as a professor that um, earning an A doesn't necessarily mean that you've learned the skills and the information. Um, people are doing very well with materials, even if they aren't necessarily making A's. And you know there are a lot of successful people out here um, who didn't necessarily ace school. Uh, so I just think um, in terms of a draw for voters, in terms of um, good quality care for Georgians generally, that um, expanding the HOPE program to make sure that students sort of across the board are having access is very important. All right. Uh, Adrian, you get the last word on this segment. We've got to take a break on Political Rewind, but we'll be back with more in a moment. The uh, FBI search at Mar-a-Lago continues to be obviously an enormous and explosive story. Uh, in national news, um, and um, we are still watching to see how it will unfold. Uh, Patricia, I do have to say, I thought Maureen Dowd uh, had a particularly, particularly tough column uh, in the New York Times yesterday in which she went after uh, Trump and the Republicans who have been attacking uh, the FBI and the Department of Justice 
relentlessly. And I thought one of the most interesting things that she had in there was that she quoted Tom Nichols, who's a writer for The Atlantic. Um, and in a TV appearance on Friday, he said that the uh, that the uh, that Republicans are oddly now echoing the leftists, the leftists from 1968, uh, those who were marching in the street against the war in Vietnam. Uh, and now we're hearing the same thing. Republicans, the FBI is the enemy. The FBI is the Gestapo. The FBI is the enemy uh, within uh, Patricia, tell us a little bit about where the landscape is in terms of how Georgia Republicans have been responding to all of this. It's so interesting because obviously the candidates and leaders who are allies of Donald Trump were very quick out of the gate. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene immediately was calling to defund the FBI, um, which sounds a lot like defund the police, but that's a whole other conversation. Uh, somebody else who I was watching carefully was Herschel Walker, who has really, in the last several months, not distanced himself from Trump, but really let the, the Trump issue quiet down and really put himself forward as um, a Georgian first, as somebody who just happens to have known Donald Trump, likes him, but he's going to do whatever he wants. Within moments of that FBI raid, that's not true. The next morning after the FBI raid, which was uh, late at night, um, was out saying that this was something that only would happen in the banana republic. And that was echoing talking points from Donald Trump Jr. and other of the Trump children. And um, t I was surprised that he did that because he really, um, as a statewide candidate, has it's just imperative to not just bring out his base, but also have people who are not Donald Trump supporters, because Donald Trump's um, allies continue to lose elections here in this state. And so it's very dangerous, I think, for statewide candidates to jump in bed with this concept of um, supporting Donald Trump with no knowledge of what is in those documents um, and calling for defunding the FBI and saying that, um, this is part of a banana republic. That is just way out there Trump world stuff. That's not statewide candidate stuff. And the way you know that is that Brian Kemp said nothing. Brian Kemp, who has aced his primary, is polling very well ahead, didn't say a word, has no plans to say a word. He's running his race on the economy, keeping his head down and minding his own business. And I think that is a very so smart I way to go about it. Uh, I just want to take another minute on this because I really want to talk a little bit about the crime issue, the uh, uh, violence, gun violence uh, in Metro Atlanta issue. But before we do, it is interesting, I think, Margaret, what Patricia just said. Kemp is running a very smart campaign. He's addressing the issues that he thinks are important to voters of Georgia. He's not getting involved. Uh, Anesa Hutchinson, the governor uh, of Arkansas, is out there on uh, a national cable shows uh uh, talking about the surge at Mar-a-Lago. So are other Republican governors. Uh, Kemp's keeping his head down and pushing forward with what he believes voters here want to hear, Margaret. Yeah, it, it, it's, um, it's, it speaks to where the Georgia Republican Party is, right? I mean, here in the 1st District, Representative Buddy Carter put out his weekly uh, email um, newsletter to constituents where he was almost as vociferous as Marjorie Taylor Greene was. And of course, Buddy Carter has been endorsed by Trump. It is it is a going to be an incredibly strange time to be a Republican, at least here, when you're going to the polls in November and you have this bifurcated ticket, right? You've got Kemp on top of the ticket. You've got other people 
um, further down who are very much pro-Trump. Like, where where do you where do you stand on policy issues between you know someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Governor Kemp? Where do you stand if you are a first district voter between Buddy Carter and Governor Kemp? And who are you going to vote for? And which boxes are you going to leave blank? Um, I don't know that these uh, these cross messages between candidates are going to work out well. All right. Um, let me, with a few minutes we have left, Maria Saporta, you have covered uh, uh, Metro Atlanta for a long time. You know this region uh, as well, if not better than any other journalist uh, out there. Where, where do we, what is happening in terms of real concrete efforts to do something about gun violence in Metro Atlanta? Um Andre Dickens, a couple times now, has in a very passionate way called on people to please settle their differences uh, peacefully. Uh, but that, of course, is uh, is an emotional plea that really isn't going to change things. What is happening that can make a difference, Maria? Well, that is hard because you have the state versus the local governments and their freedoms uh, to pass certain legislation. Uh, I am old enough to remember when uh, gun buyback programs were prevalent and that that was a way to get uh, guns off the streets. You don't hear anybody talking about that anymore. And I think that um, I applaud uh, Mayor Dickens for saying, yes, let's try and resolve our our differences uh, peacefully. Uh, It's very hard uh, in a moment of anger um, to control yourself if you have ready access to a gun. Um, I do. I did hear a proposal that we need to have uh, conflict resolution classes in every in every uh, elementary school and in every high school and every middle school. So, I mean, that is just one idea of how we can help people resolve their differences. But there's no way that can hurt. Adrian, I have no idea. Um, I, I I don't think my thoughts expand past. The idea that I feel like um, the local mayor, ours, for example, are um, have are struggling against the tenor of the state, right? I mean, how am I supposed to control guns in my local area um, if the state doesn't support that? Especially right now in the election period, where um, you know that defund the police issue for um, Stacey Abrams keeps coming up. I, I don't see it getting any better before the midterms, or the next election. Um, Patricia, I used to uh, 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 think that it was really a shame that uh, that the local news outlets at 11 o'clock every night, uh, their first block was always all about gun crime, gun violence, even when there are other major issues in the news. The fact of the matter is, right now, you have to report on all of the gun violence because the landscape has changed so dramatically. And it also almost feels like the culture has changed. Um, the trial for Kennedy Maxey's killer um, has just begun. And the details of that crime are that a man was robbed of his cell phone in a parking lot at Phipps Plaza, grabbed the Glock he happened to have on him, and just started shooting. Yeah. And that is how that little girl was murdered in the backseat of her aunt's car. It is just so tragic. And with that prevalence of guns, so easy to be angry, grab a gun, and start shooting – People who have nothing to do with that, who have no, no, uh, no business being murdered with their mother in their aunt's car. That is what's happening. That's the reality here in Georgia now. Um, And it's something that I think 
uh, we've got to deal with. Um, this is a subject we need to talk about in much more detail, and I'll I'll try to find time to do that in on the show in the weeks ahead. In the meantime, you all covered an awful lot of ground. We are completely out of time uh, for the show today. But uh, Margaret Coker, Maria Saporta, Adrian Jones, Patricia Murphy, thank you for a wonderful start to the week, and thank you. Uh, for helping me get back into the swing of things after a vacation. You all were just terrific. That's it for us for today. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.